One of the commands of Scripture that I am certain many of us struggle with because sometimes we're just too stinking embarrassed is to shout praise to our God. So I think I'll give you a hallelujah and you can shout that and then have a seat. Let's give our praise to God. (laughs) Praise God. Have a seat. That was fun. Man, I, I don't know about you, but, but I, I'm goosebumped all morning, and there's a lot of reasons and, and, uh, and a little time for me to explain all of the reasons right now, um, unless I just keep you till second service shows up, or I'll just stop, pick up where I left off in second service. You guys can talk to each other and figure out what in the world I was saying. That'd be okay, too. We're going to be, and, and I'm going to tell you, take your Bible. It's not Galatians. I know all your, your Bibles just kind of open to Galatians. Take it to Jeremiah chapter 29. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning as we look at Scripture together. And as you're turning there, just a few things. I, 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 I'm excited. I, I know that surprises you. I'm never excited. Um, I am, I'm ecstatic about some of the things that God is doing. It is so much fun just to hear um, you talk about the opportunities that God has given to you and, and, and to see you excited about the opportunity to minister to other people in your neighborhoods and in your community and in your workplaces and in your schools. And so we, we want to continue to celebrate that and, and to encourage you in that process. Um, this year, just let me lay out a couple of very quick, these aren't vision things. These are just kind of, hey, this is what's going to happen this year. Just a couple of real quick things. Um, the, the pastors, the elders, we are um, working through our bylaws and constitution as a church. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, not the least of which is some of it actually contradicts itself, so that's a little difficult. But one of the main reasons is um, we are going to need to make sure that we carefully walk through the issues of gender, marriage, and sexuality together. And so what's going to happen is that has to be included in our bylaws constitution at some point. So let me give you a big snapshot of where this year is going. So we're going to, um, after next week, we're going to jump back into the book of Galatians. We'll wrap Galatians up. When Galatians is done, it's Easter. Praise God for Easter. That's going to be a, um, again, I could preach my Easter message now if you want, but I probably shouldn't do that. Um, right after Easter, we are going to begin a series that is focused on what's called the Minor Prophets. It's the final books of the Old Testament that begin with Hosea and Joel, Amos, Obadiah. I could, I could actually name them, I promise, but I won't. We'll, we'll walk through those together and once a, one a week. We're going to t- focus on that as our preaching time. When the minor prophets are done, there's this exciting thing that's going to happen is we are going to ask you what your favorite Sunday school stories were, what your favorite stories in Scripture of all time, what their favorite stories are. We're going to ask for your input up on the board, and then we're going to take those ideas and we're going to bring them into our children's wing. And we're going to ask our kids, what are your favorite stories? Here's some that the parents picked, but what are yours? And whatever the kids pick, that will be our preaching series for the summer. That's going to be fun. Um, Right after that, we're going to work through, I think that's about when we end up working through um, gender, marriage, sexuality. We're going to preach through that. And then, I'm excited, we're going to work through the book of Ruth together. And then we're in Christmas. Blink, it's here. So there you go. There's a quick snapshot of what we're driving towards. Um, I've been asked a couple of times. I can do this real fast. Um, this is what I'll do. Um, I've been asked a number of times about Bible uh, versions. Which version do I use when I preach? We've actually received phone calls and asking that. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a quick snapshot. And then later this week on the Uniontown Facebook page, I'll post something a little bit more descriptive for you, okay? There, there really are um, four Bible versions that I tend to drift towards. It's the New American Standard the English Standard, the New International Version, and the New Living Translation. 
And if you were to look on a spectrum of, of the way Bible versions are viewed, they are all the way across the spectrum. And, and so if I'm looking to figure out exactly what the, the original word meant, I'm going to go with the New American Standard because it's very literal. The English Standard is a little less literal, but it, it gives us a little bit more readability. That's the one that I tend to preach from the most is the English Standard Version. The NIV is the historical version for the most part here at Uniontown. The difficulty is the modern NIV really is a a bad translation. It's terrible. <laughs> I could say some things, but it makes me sound smart, and I'm not. I'm just stealing what other people have said, and I've noticed, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, the NIV 1984 is great, but they're removed, they've completely removed it from shelves. In fact, so much so now that authors who want to quote the NIV in their books are no longer legally allowed to quote the NIV 1984. They must quote the modern one. So, so that's going to be out of print and completely unavailable for you. I mean, that's, I tried to find one when I came here. I actually tried to find a good preaching Bible. And the cheapest Bible I could find that, was, that would fit what I would declare a good preaching Bible, and we all have our own taste, it was $300. And I thought, yeah, I really like the ESV. Um, <laughs> so, so I'll explain much more about that uh, on our Facebook page to kind of give you even an understanding of what each version is and how it ended up the way it did. And, ooh, uh, and we can have that discussion online. Actually, it'd be a that's a fun discussion if you're a nerd like I am. So, okay, now here we go. Now watch this. I told everybody I had a 15-minute version, a 20-minute version, and a 25-minute version of my message. We're going to go with the 45-minute version and mix them all together. All right, hang tight. <laughs> Celebration is amazing, isn't it? It's so much fun just to celebrate. The difficulty is and the problem is is that when context is introduced to our celebration, really changes some things. This morning, we celebrate what God's doing around us. We celebrate that we can be a part of what he's doing, fully aware of this. God doesn't need us. You know that, right? God can have a rock cry out, and he'll get the glory. So he doesn't need us, but praise God, he wants to use us, and he's given us the opportunity to be used, and so we celebrate that. However, that being said, we don't celebrate absent of context. And so I have no question that in this room, every single one of us, not a few of us, not a certain percentage of us, but every single one of us is celebrating this morning within a context of difficulty. Now, the difficulties look different. I mean, they can be very insignificant, like, you know, I've got the sniffles, I've got a headache, I've got the flu, I'm a Ravens fan. I mean, some of those are... Come on, it's been three, what, four weeks? I've said nothing. <laughs> but for all of us, there are these difficulties, some of them insignificant like that, and some of them are much more significant, like a poor report from the doctor, a marriage that's falling apart, some, some confusion and fear about what might happen at work. And then there's the soul-crushing ones paralyzing ones. And, and, and many within our church family, even this week, experienced that darkness with the loss of a young one. So celebration doesn't happen outside of that context. And one of the very real dangers is that it, we love to celebrate. And in an effort to get to the celebration as fast as we can from our darkness, what we tend to do is look for the quick fix and so we end up clinging to a false hope. And, and it's, 
I know this is, is it's just by definition. False hope is no hope. And, and, and when we do that, it's cruel. It's cruel to do that to ourselves. It's cruel to do it to other people. It, it's, it's, and yet we do it all the time. And one of the places that we are guilty most often of doing it is from this beautiful verse in Jeremiah chapter 29. And some of you are worried because I ripped on a verse in the Psalms and it was your favorite verse, be still and know that I am God. Um, and I, there were a lot of posters and coffee mugs that were thrown away that week. But let me say this, Jeremiah 29, 11 is still a beautiful verse and I would argue even much more so when you understand the context. Because Jeremiah 29, 11, the, the verse that we kind of run to says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I'm telling you, and I'm going to try to paint the picture of the context because that verse is beautiful, but it is far more beautiful taken within its context. So what is, is, is its context? If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 28, I'm not going to read through all of it for time's sake, but I'll just kind of hit the high points and the, some of the low points. Now I'll go back to chapter 27. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, I want you to do something visual for your people. So I want you to take a yoke and I want you to strap it to your shoulders And then I want you to declare to all the people that Babylon, that great country with the leader Nebuchadnezzar, is going to come in and you are all going to be subservient to him and to Babylon. And so as you wear this yoke around your shoulders, it's going to be a picture to the people. You are going to be enslaved by this nation. And God says, I am the reason Babylon is coming in. I am in control and I am bringing Babylon in and everybody's knees should bow to him, to Nebuchadnezzar, to that country. You get to chapter 28, and this young guy, I picture him as a young guy because most, I like to say us young guys, but that, that's almost gone. Um, some of us young dudes, we tend to think we got it figured out. That was my attempt to apologize for the comment about the uh, 65-year-old woman last week. Am I forgiven? Praise God. I heard somebody say, yes, I'm taking it from all of you, so... <laughs> So this young dude, Hananiah, comes in. He says, listen, I know Jeremiah has told you that that you are going to be taken captive by the Babylonians at Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm here to tell you that that yoke around his neck will be broken in two years. You're only going to be held captive for two years, and then you'll be brought back to your home, and everything will be given back to you, and it'll be amazing. Jeremiah's response in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 6 is this, amen, my brother. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 28. The prophets who came before you and came before me from ancient times, they prophesied wars and famines and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. But this one prophet, i.e. you, my little brother, who prophesies peace? Well, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then we will know the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Now, so Jeremiah, like the big brother prophet, confronts little brother prophet and says, listen, my man, I know what you're saying, but, but this has been a consistent message from God. There will be hardship. So my little brother, if you, your prophecy comes to pass and there's great peace that comes, then we'll know you heard from the Lord. So how did little brother Hananiah respond? Little brother Hananiah approached Jeremiah and took the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders, the yoke that God had commanded that Jeremiah put on, and broke it and said, in two years, God's going to free you from Babylon and break the enslavement just like I did. 
Jeremiah hears from the Lord and approaches Hananiah and says to him, listen, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. I will remove you from the face of the earth, the Lord says. This year you will die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And then verse 17, in that same year, the seventh month, which is two months later, the prophet Hananiah indeed died. So the context preceding Jeremiah 29 is a false prophet coming in and saying, it's only going to be two years, just hang in there, and then everything's going to be wonderful. Jeremiah, the beginning of chapter 29, starting in verse 1, he says this. This is the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, who was still in Jerusalem, sent to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's sending a letter from Jerusalem to those who, who have already tasted of Nebuchadnezzar's affliction. Verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah. I'm going to pass that. Verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elsa. I'll pass that. And this is what the letter said. Verse 4, this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'm going to stop right there because that is significant. What God says is, this letter is to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. One of the things that must happen in the midst of our difficulties is remember that they don't exist outside of God's control. Those difficulties, God says, listen, it wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar flexed and God went, oh no. God sent his people into exile. God was in control. God's power, not Nebuchadnezzar's power. So so we must understand that trials, the pain, the difficulties we encounter, they're not separate from God's good plans for our life. There's a million reasons why bad things happen. There's a million reasons why great difficulties arise. I mean, it all comes back to sin, whether it be our own sin and the consequences of our sin, or it be the sin of another person, and we feel the effects of them making a sinful choice and sinful decision. Or it's just the the fact that we live in a fallen place because this world is so broken. Turn on the news for 10 minutes, and I'm not talking political even though that demonstrates it pretty good too. Turn on the news for 10 minutes and you will see the effects of sin, whether it be in natural disaster, in in incredible wars, death, famine. This world is broken. And so many times the difficulties come because of that. Sometimes we're told in James that, that difficulties come as a way to strengthen our faith. Sometimes we're told, even in uh, John chapter 9, by Jesus himself, difficulties came in the life of the blind man. Remember the Pharisees asked Jesus, why is this man born blind? Did his parents sin or did he sin? And Jesus' response was, no, 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 no. This difficulty in his life, his blindness, is so that all might see the glory of God. And so there's all kinds of reasons these dark times come. But in those dark times, what we must do is be careful to avoid false hope. It's not easy to say that God's in these things. And it's easier for us to run to things that aren't necessarily real hope. So look at verse 5. 
This is what God's commanding of his people while they're in Babylon, in exile. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, have daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that you have caused them to dream. It's a lie. The lie that they're prophesying to you in my name, I did not send them, declares the Lord. So we need to be careful to avoid the wrong answers in difficulties because they're easier. Remember what the false prophets were saying. Two years, we're out of here. Two years, it's going to be great. They didn't want 70 years, but that's what it was. Jeremiah's response to the people is, for 70 years you will be in exile. I know you don't like that, but it's true. How cruel is it to tell somebody two years, and when that calendar flips that final page, nothing changes. Where's their hope? So what we must do is in our difficulties and in our dark times, we must dive into the hope we do have. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, with 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you. I'll fulfill to you my promise, and I'll bring you back to this place. See, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future, to give you a hope. Then you'll call upon me, and you'll come, and you'll pray to me, and I will hear you. You'll seek me, and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, when we dive into hope, what we dive into is this. God is faithful to his promises. What he says in verse 10 is this. Your hardship is not going to disappear. Verse 11, he says, I have good plans for you, I promise. And that's emphatic. What he says, if you were to literally translate that, he says, I myself have promised. When God says that, you pay attention. So he promises that the plans he has for them are good and right. God promises to hear when we call out to him. God promises to be found when we look for him. He's not playing hide and seek. He promises us himself, and he promises a full relationship with himself. See, in the middle of difficulty, God never says, don't worry, there won't be a difficulty. I'm going to remove difficulty. God never promises us a lack of difficulty, but he promises to remain faithful in the midst of our difficulty. His faithfulness never wavers. His faithfulness never falters. His faithfulness never forgets to refresh itself every morning. And so for us as a people who want to celebrate, we celebrate within the context of difficulty. So what we must do is in our difficult, find hope and celebrate in truth. And that hope and that truth is this. We seek him, we find him. The hope and the truth is this. The reason we find him is because God loved us and sent his son Jesus Christ in heaven receiving all the praise and sin as dark as it can possibly be willingly left heaven to come and take your place on the cross. That's where we find hope. So, so what I want to do is this. I'm going to apply it in three different ways. Um, 
This is crazy that this is like the, the most insignificant one, but bear with me, okay? I want to be sensitive, but at the same time, it's like, oh, listen. The first way is this. Well, how do we apply the idea of finding hope and celebrating truth in the middle of the, the climate of America today? In the middle of not, not just political, but, but, but just the fact that there is an overt disregard for God. That, that people are, are, are not just atheistic, but they're just pagans. And they celebrate their paganism and they celebrate their atheism. And, and so, so how do we do that? Well, here's the problem. The false hope, the false hope is that they would follow after a moralism. The false hope is if they would just do better things and be better people, everything would be okay. The problem with that, and Jesus spoke very clearly to the Pharisees about that. He says, you, you would be like a whited sepulcher. You would be like a, a whitewashed tomb. You would have the outside nice and clean and the inside would be filled with rotting flesh. The hope isn't moralism. The hope is that when God said, if you seek me, you will find me, that God made a way for them. So, so let me shoot very, 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 very straight. And I'm not worried about this, even though I think I am. The hope of our nation is not about an immigration policy. It is certainly not about a wall. It's not about anarchy. It's not about Democrats, and it's not about Republicans. It's not about Republicans. It's not about Republicans. The hope of our nation is that the people of our nation have the opportunity, as long as they have breath, to humble themselves before Jesus Christ, not a political party. I was watching for rocks. It's truth. We find hope not in the falseness of political affiliations. We find hope in a God who loves us in spite of the fact that we cling to our political affiliations more than we do him. We Facebook post more about our political affiliations than we do him. We get in fights more about what the Democrats say than we do about somebody who stands there and decries that Jesus wasn't the son of God. May we get our priorities right and me off my soapbox. Um, false hope. It's not moralism. False hope. So this came to mind this week, uh, meeting with the Spuriers and praying with them and preparing for uh, the funeral tomorrow night, um, their daughter Kristen, 25 years old, vibrant a person as there was, and I praise God that as we talked, the, the hope that they had is that Kristen's in Jesus' arms because Jesus loves her. Um, so that brought to mind the three little ones who Stephanie and I have lost in miscarriage. Brought to mind friends of ours who have lost infants and little ones. It brought to mind a number of people who have had to go through the unspeakable darkness of burying their own child. And, and, and let's be clear, our hope isn't found, and the problem is it's a false hope, our hope isn't found in the age of that child. Hear, hear me out, Okay. What do you say to a, child, a family who's lost their child? This, this, is, this, is, this is what I say, man. There's really not a lot specific in Scripture about it. However, though it may not be specific and not exhaustive, I think there's some significant evidence in here that God's character is good. I mean, the, the, the real quick one, um, scriptural evidence that I usually go to is 2 Samuel chapter 12, when you see the 
um, response of David when his baby is sick and ill and he's mourning and weeping and he refuses to take nourishment, he refuses to sleep, he refuses and, and, and he wrestles with it and he struggles with it and, and then the, 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 he hears his servants whispering and they're like, I'm not telling them that the baby's dead. Look at him, what is he going to respond like? And David picks up on that and he's like, you, the baby's dead? Yes, the, the baby's dead. And, and David picks himself off the floor. He hasn't cleaned himself. He hasn't eaten. He's done nothing for seven days. And he goes and he cleans himself and he calls for food and he begins to feast. And his servants are like, this doesn't make any sense. And again, he hears his servants and he asks what's going on. And they say, sir, when you, when, when you, when you heard of the baby's illness, you, you were inconsolable. But not the baby's gone. You're celebrating. What is that? And he says, well, well when the baby was still alive, it was a matter of it was a matter of um, maybe, perhaps, perhaps God would save the baby. But now that the baby's gone, I rejoice because I'll go see him someday. I don't mourn as one without hope. Then you go to chapter 19 with his very rebellious um, son who was not younger. Um, and, and when... He is killed in battle. David is inconsolable. So there's some, some evidences that are not, again, exhaustive, but they give us some significant ideas that, that in the life of a young one, in the life of a one, uh, uh, well, here it is. Let me, let me do this. When you're asking how old, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question because the question really is, who's God? Hope isn't found in the midst of that horror by clinging to the age of our children. Hope is found in God's character. He is trustworthy, he is just, he is right, he is faithful, he is good. And even though there are days, there are days that in my car I am crying out to him and, and probably not so respectfully and probably not so much that I should tell you this, but that, okay, and I'm accusing him because you obviously don't know what you're doing. But God's character is that he is good and just and right and his ways aren't always our ways. And yet, in the middle of that, he can be trusted because God, Psalm 34 tells me, my God does, doesn't despise those who are broken in spirit. Luke, Luke chapter 19 tells me that, that Jesus Christ loved me enough to leave heaven to seek and save those who needed him most. Philippians 2 tells me that, 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 that Jesus, even though he could have willingly defeated all of those at the foot of his cross, he, he stood there in silence and willingly and obediently took death on the cross for me. So, so long and short is this. There is nobody in heaven because they are innocent. It doesn't matter how old they are. There is not a single person in heaven because they are innocent. They are before God's throne for all of eternity because Christ set them free from sin and credited his righteousness to their account. And so may I encourage you it's sensitive, it's hard. And there's people in this room who I know this breaks their heart. Not, not the hope. The hope fills them with joy. Because in their hearts, what they know is that God's character can be trusted. And so we trust God's character. We trust God's character because we know one day Jesus Christ was born. One day Jesus Christ willingly took the cross for us. One day he rose from the dead. One day he's coming back again. And one day we'll meet the Lord with those young and old and worship him forever. And so we find our hope there.
All right. So that, that was the sensitive one. Here's the awkward one. So what, what kind of false hopes do we believe in when your church begins to fail? How many of you have been here more than three years? Raise your hand. Your whole baby. <laughs> so, where's the hope when it just goes twisted? Let me, let me make sure, let me do it this way. Let me tell you where your hope isn't. Because sometimes the false hope, this is where we run to. We run to the fact that the elders and pastors have stepped up and led through the crisis. We praise God that happened. That's not our hope. We run to the fact that there are way more backsides in the seats today than were two years ago. We celebrate that, but that's not our hope. We, we, we run to the fact that the finances of the church are better than ever. We celebrate that, but that's not our hope. Hope isn't found in phase one of the building starting any day now. But all those things are good gifts from God, and we celebrate those as such, and then we allow our thankfulness and celebration for those things to roll up right past them to the throne of God where we thank him for who he is. See, our hope, the reason for our celebration and the content of our celebration and the ability for us to celebrate is this. God knows us. This is his church. This is his church. And let, let me be clear, that doesn't mean, oh, so, so it says that the gates of hell will never stand against us. So this church will never shut down. You know what? And I pray it doesn't happen anytime soon. This church could shut down someday. Has God suddenly been thrown off the throne? Oh, no, no, no. Because his church universal, will never be overthrown. And I love that in Matthew 16, it talks about, you know, this is my church upon this rock, I will build the church, and, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And in our minds, we're sitting here passive, and the gates of hell are storming up that hill. And we're like, nope, we're here, we're safe, nothing to fear. Guess what? That ain't what it says. The gates of hell will not be able to stand. The gates were a defensive uh, mechanism. And so what's happening is God's church is running off the hill and it's running face first into the community with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell will never prevail over him. So let me, let me encourage you. I'm way over time, but that's all right. We're going to celebrate more. Let me encourage you. When you feel the spiritual attack, because guess what? Not only will we, we already are. It's happening. Now, honestly, sometimes we just need to own it for ourselves and be like, that's because I'm an idiot. But there are times where it's like the spiritual attack is coming because God is doing something. So may we celebrate well that God is willing to use us even though he doesn't need us and even though we are far from perfect and that one day our faith will be sight and we'll see him in all of his glory and so shall we ever be with the Lord all because... God loved us and sent his son. I'm going to ask that you stand as I close in prayer. Father, I praise you that our hope is connected with a God who created everything we see. That our hope is is connected to a Savior who came and defeated sin and death forever. That our hope is connected with the, the body of Christ who stands here in front of me and that our hope does not uh, rest on anything that's movable, but on a God who is forever faithful and immovable. 
I thank you, Father, for what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he will do for us. I thank you that one day we will stand before you in all of your glory and worship you with additional ministry, Lord, so that we can serve you in ways that we're not able to now. Lord, I just pray that the building would go off without any problems and that things would occur the way they were supposed to, Lord. Lord, it's ultimately about you, and you are going to be served in the walls of this building, Lord, and, and I'm so excited about what that looks like, Lord. Thank you for the blessings of the finances, Lord. Help us to continue to be faithful in providing to you because you have been faithful to us. As I th- as I think about that, Lord, I think about the Israelites and how they had to stop bringing gifts because they had everything they needed for the tabernacle, Lord. And I just pray that that would be true of us as a church. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. You are good. You are faithful. I ask now that you would be with us as we provide an offering to you at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.